He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, April 29, 2023. This week it was Israel's 75th birthday, and we have an amazing guest, Ken Toltz. He is a Colorado politico who made Aliyah to Israel, and he is our man in Israel. What a great interview we had with Ken. I work hard every week. In fact, I have to turn in a brief on April 30th. Yes, lawyers sometimes have to work on the weekend. And when you do a daily radio show, it's difficult. I did that for a long time. I did it with Dan Kaplis. Kaplis and Silverman became the talk of the town. And when I left my law firm on Monday, I have a pretty short commute. It was about quarter to six. I turned on the radio and darned if Dan wasn't talking about me. This is what I heard. They were talking about Tucker Carlson leaving. Good topic. I am so happy that Tucker was gone. I turned in my column that Monday, Tuesday morning, bright and early. I wrote about Tucker Carlson and Fox News. No Colorado lawyer has been on Fox News more than me. Check out my Colorado Sun column. So this was a great topic. And apparently Dan was considering with his sidekick producer, the guy who's even to the right of Dan Kaplis, that's not easy. But Ryan Schuling from Michigan, he chooses the sound bites and he uh, has most of the conversation with Dan. And that's good because the callers are weak for the most part. Not always, but for the most part. So that's Ryan Schuling bouncing it around back and forth with Dan Kaplis about where will Tucker Carlson go? Where should he go? And it sounded like this when I got in my car and started listening. Let's say he goes to CNN or MSNBC. I just laugh thinking about it. Because you remember, you're, you're an encyclopedia, you remember... Tucker Carlson comes from a point-counterpoint background. Yeah. And in fact, he started that way on Fox, doing point-counterpoint segments as his opening segment. And so if, if you were smart and you were a CNN or MSNBC, you would bring him in, you would let him do his thing unbridled, and then you'd do some point-counterpoint kind would of stuff. Would you pair him back up with Paul Begala? No, he'd have his own show. But he would be able to go on other people's shows and do point-counterpoint or bring some of those people onto his show. He's not afraid of that stuff. Most people are afraid of it. He's not afraid of it. We had arguably, you know, seven of the best years of, of Denver radio in the last 50 years when it was Kaplis and Silverman, and we were doing true point counterpoint. If they could have aired our breaks, we would have been the number one show in the country. Have you noticed, But it though, would have Dan, had to have been on satellite. And it's not anything that you chose to do. I'm sure you would continue to do such a, a format. But we we see less and less of that yeah. now, both on radio and television, yeah. of that kind of point-counterpoint that you're talking about. People are about. afraid of it. I they, think you're right. They're afraid to do those shows. I mean, as a guy who did it for seven years with, with a really talented counterpoint, it's a lot of hard work. But, but yeah. I loved it. 
I loved it and I'd do it again, you know, so, and I want to do it again. Yeah. I did a lot of the hard work. Being, I loved it myself. One, I won every argument. Two, I got to set the tone by setting the topics. We would have a meeting every day at 11, but I'm a creative guy. I'm bursting with ideas. And Dan, you can listen to his show now. It's a lot like what Fox News has to say. This week, he's been talking about transsexuals, but for good discussions, I would bring my topics and I would bring guests. I'd line up guests. And then I would also have fresh sound. I like to bring you current events, fresh sound, something you haven't heard before. Radio, the perfect medium, same as this podcast. That's why I have sound bites today, because a little preparation goes a long way. We had a lot of great listeners, superb advertisers. I was making a boatload of money on top of my practice, and that's one reason that uh, that show would not work anymore. The listenership is gone. Ford is even taking out AM radios. People don't commute anymore. People listen to podcasts. And why not? So many commercials, this and that. But back in the day, we had it going on. And a lot of people listened. We never had open lines. We prided ourselves on that. Now they have open line this or that. I worked harder. We were prepared. Liberals liked it. Conservatives liked it. One guy I know who listened was Larry Meisel. Larry Meisel is a big shot, not just here in Colorado, MDC, Meisel Development Corporation, but he's been bankrolling big parts of uh, Colorado's Jewish charities. Puts on that men's event every year. He was somewhat toward the Republican side, but he also backs Hickelooper, Weiser, Michael Bennett. He just wants to support Israel. Ken Tolson, I talk about him during our upcoming conversation, but listen to the primary role of Larry right now. Larry, who was in the White House frequently with Trump, now he was in Israel the benefactor of Ron DeSantis speaking at his Museum of Tolerance on this big week, this big event. Here, listen for yourself. Thank you so much. Well, we appreciate that. Casey and I are really honored to be in the eternal and indivisible capital of the Jewish people, the great city of Jerusalem, to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence. I want to thank Larry Meisel for inviting me, and congratulations on this great project here, the Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem. Uh, what a remarkable achievement. Gosh, what a plum post for Ron DeSantis, who's making a world tour because it was thought he was going to replace Donald Trump, but not so fast. Although when you think about the damage that E. Jean Carroll v. Donald Trump is going to do, followed up by prosecutions. Maybe DeSantis is the last Republican standing, putting fingers in awe. Anyway, Larry Meisel is sitting at the table with him. Uh, Sheldon Adelson's widow at the table. I've seen the pictures. Ken Tolson and I talk about it. 75 years for Israel, that's significant. 
I'm proud to do episode 146, not anywhere near as significant, but we're marching up toward 150, double 75, which means about three years of podcasting. And I had about, what was it, 15 years of radio before that. Took a lot of pride in daily radio. Take a lot of pride in this podcast. We've been a big part of the Denver mayoral campaign, and that will continue. Kelly Bruff invited back Mike Johnston. Two great interviews. Kelly Bruff won so far, one to come, I think. Anyway, back to Dan Kaplitz, because I went to the podcast to see if I came up earlier, and my goodness, he's on from four to six now, usually has one topic, and it was that day, a good one, Tucker Carlson, but he started by saying, what a great guy Tucker Carlson is. I knew Ryan Schilling believed that, but wow, Tucker Carlson, who had Kanye West on, who's a white power guy. The ADL said he needs to be removed. They don't say that very often. The guy who had came out uses this C word with regularity. The guy who confessed his hatred for Donald Trump. The guy who said that, uh, what was her name? Jackie? Jackie, the honest reporter for Fox News who reported that Trump had lost Tucker Carlson said she should be fired. What was it, Jackie Heinrich? And Dan Kaplis is loving on Tucker Carlson, saying he's done mainly terrific things. Oh, here's the start of the 5 o'clock hour. It starts every hour with his intro, which I want you to hear right now. From Monday, the last full week of April. In this corner, from the University of Colorado, 30 years in the ring, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way, Dan Kaplan. Man, a guy who fights really well for the American way, Tucker Carlson, now fired at Fox. Can't say, oh, America's lost a great asset because he's not going anywhere. Tucker Carlson will probably be as or more impactful at his next stop. Perfect? No, I've disagreed with him publicly on some things, but fearless and overall a force for good. Fearless? The guy was afraid to tell the truth for fear of losing his audience. Are you fucking kidding me? You're going to praise Tucker Carlson and also you're going to have that promo 30 years in the ring, like you're a boxer, physical fighting. Gosh, I wrote a Colorado Sun column talking about Trumpism and the real violence that comes with it, the real violence that came on January 6th as part of Trump's coup. God, that pisses me off. It really does. And act your age, man. I graduated in 1974 from George Washington High School. Listen to my episode with Steve Feinsilver. He was my classmate. Ken Toltz was the year behind me. That's the class of 75. That's Dan Kaplis at his seminary in Chicago. So no, it's not 30 years. We've been lawyers over 40 years now. We're not as young as we used to be. I put on a hell of a weekend show, Let's Keep Going, because I kept listening, and they finally had a decent caller. Honestly, the average caller... Is QAnon or about 123 years old? But there's this guy, Mike, who said, I'm going to challenge Dan. 
because Tucker Carlson is one of the most dishonest fuckers in the world. And I'm going to ask Dan why he thinks it's okay to mislead his audience. But before he can get started, one, Dan put him on toward the end of the uh, last hour and then brought him back at the top of the five. And before he even gets to talk, Dan demeans him. And listen for phony exhalations of air, dismissible laughter. I hope you don't hear that out of me because I don't like to... I don't like to hear it out of other people. So this guy's name is Mike from Erie, and of course Dan starts by calling him friend and then putting some other labels on him. Mike in Erie, you're on the Dan Kaplan Show. Thank you, my friend. So your premise at the end of the 4 o'clock hour was, Dan, you must think your listeners are illiterate. So take it from there, my friend. Yeah, I hope you don't think I'm spitting venom, uh, Dan. I'm just stating what, what mm. I have to assume is true. Mm. So, mm. Um, so the reason I say that is is um, it's interesting. Actually, I was visiting my elderly mother over the weekend in South Carolina, mm. and, uh, and, and and it all came clear to me. And, and as you played this uh, soundbite about Dr. Carlson being filled with the Holy Spirit when he speaks truth, I can only assume that you think no, none of your listeners read anything or uh, saw anything that came out of the Dominion lawsuit mm. about you know his texts, his emails, his what he said offline, and then mm. what he would do online on the air. Mm. You don't think people have read that or or no? Wow, way to go, Erie Mike! That was tremendous. Now, this is good radio because everybody wonders how will Dan Kaplis defend, at least I do, but then maybe an 85-year-old grandmother, she looks to Dan and says, Dan will tell us the truth. Is this guy a deceiver, this Mike from Erie? And according to Dan, he's the kind of guy who cannot back it up or pack it up. Listen to this exchange between Dan and Erie Mike. I'm not sure, my friend, how the two are connected. Because I don't think you're... How would you play uh, something that says he speaks truth and and claim he's a truth speaker when we know the truth? When we know the truth. Oh, I I get it. So your, your premise is that somebody can only be a truth speaker if they're never wrong or if they never make a mistake? Because there's only been one of those, and his name was Jesus Christ. And and other than that, every other truth speaker in the history of the world has also been wrong about some things and has also been flawed in some ways. Mm-hmm. Did you, I don't if think I said that Tucker Carlson was Jesus Christ. I know him. I didn't say that because I don't believe that. Well, no, and I didn't. Impl- I didn't infer that either. But my point is, is you were you and your other guests were insinuating that he speaks truth. That's what he does. Oh, he when speaks fact, a lot of truth. Know, that's exactly what he doesn't do. Oh, oh okay. Slow down, I mean, big fella. Do Slow down. You're, you're speaking. It seems to me in absolutes. So, your premise is that if Tucker Carlson is ever wrong about anything, then he's automatically wrong about everything. Of course not. Of course not. Oh, okay. Don't, then don't then explain this now. to me. Let, let me ask you then if, if you'll agree with this, that it's possible for a person to speak profound truths in a very impactful and courageous way while still occasionally being wrong about other things. 
course. Okay. Well, that's Tucker Carlson. Kumbaya, my brother. No, no, no it's not. No, it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> so is he always you wrong? Has he, it, well, well, let me ask you this, Mike. It might save time and it might let your mom relax a little bit. Has Tucker Carlson ever been right about anything important in your view? I, I don't. I don't know of anything. No, oh, okay. Sure well, then then that, sure ex, that explains the distortion here, right? That, that explains the logical yeah. breakdown on your part because you assume he's been wrong about everything. No, I didn't say that. I, said, oh, okay. I don't know that. I don't know that he has. Oh, okay. But well, what I do know pay more for attention. a fact, for a absolute fact, is that he texted mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of people saying okay. that this was all BS, what he was putting online, and then he continued to do it. Can that's you get uh, wrong? Uh, big fella, dishon- big, that's being dishonest. He, that's being dishonest. Whoa, being big, big, big fella, big fella. <laughs> back, back it up or pack it up, big guy. Can you give us a specific example of that? Because I think you're overgeneralizing. It's the play dumb defense. It's. The guy's talking about apples and oranges. It's disconnected. Dan acts like he can't figure out what this guy is talking about, as if Tucker Carlson hasn't been caught in multiple documented dishonesties. He hated Donald okay. Trump. He okay. hated him with a passion. And yet, mm-hmm. a week later, he interviewed him and, and just gave yeah. him all softballs and, and, and uh, easy to stuff. Oh, oh okay. So, well, well, well we, got, really, we got plenty of time. Truthful? There's no need to rush. You've got plenty of time. Can you give us the actual specifics? It sounds to me like you're spitballing a little Dan, bit. Dan, please, don't insult my intelligence and the intelligence of your listeners. <laughs> By asking you for actual evidence? <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I withdraw the question. No witness should be required to present actual evidence. My I'm, I'm bad. Gonna, I, don't, I don't have the... Uh, right, you right, of course. I can, I can go get the closest... Yeah, course that's okay. We'll still be here, God willing. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah, still yeah. be here. Just, just I just want to deal law, with then? actual evidence. It's the court of law. <laughs> it's the court of public opinion, and well, I have great respect judge. for our you're listeners. Not, I want to bring them. We're evidence based. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so if if you want to bring the evidence, my friend, you know we we are absolutely uncensored here. Unlike the leftist media outlets, bring it on. But mm. we just want it to be true. Is that okay? Are, are you denying what I, are you denying what I'm saying though? I don't know what you're saying because you're not bringing us the evidence. When when Tucker Carlson went during the Dominion discovery phase, mm-hmm. they found texts that Tucker Carlson said that he hated Donald Trump. And and what year was that and from? That he, I, I assume 2021. I, I don't know. I have a very reliable source known as Ryan Schuling who's telling me that was 2016. And a lot changed between sixteen and twenty because Trump then had a great presidency. I don't. I don't think your. I don't think your source is right because the context mm. of the text was, "We'll be done with him shortly." Yeah. Yeah. So that I, well, that that could have been, that could have been sixteen. Sixteen, really, Dan? And then he had a great presidency. Oh yeah, but for those two impeachments, oh yeah, you called them coups, whatever. Today, driving home, I heard the. Novage commercials for the guy with five cats. The advertising, it's weak, but the argument's even weaker. Dan is saying Sam Alito told the Wall Street Journal that he knows that people who wanted to get him assassinated leaked that opinion. I say he who smelt it dealt it. But there again, that's that abortion issue. And some people lose all perspective when it comes to those things. 
our Supreme Court's big problem. There are so many interesting things to talk about other than transsexuals. I don't get my entertainment anymore from AM radio. I do from podcasts. Charlie Sykes is on fire. So is Andrew Wiseman. They do daily podcasts about prosecuting Donald Trump. Charlie Sykes, a former Republican drive-time guy from Wisconsin, smart, principled. Funny enough, I'll tell you who's a great podcaster, E. Jean Carroll. She did a show on TV for a long time in New York. She was uh, an advice columnist for Elle magazine, and now she's going to bring down Donald Trump with the truth. E. Jean, Ask E. Jean, was a great podcast I researched this week, and I found her with a great interview of Hunter S. Thompson. She got to know him. She wrote a biography about him. So I was intrigued, learned a lot more. E. Jean Carroll really did get raped by Donald Trump in or around 1996. Bergdorf Goodman, sixth floor dressing room. According to the way it's been described, it's not like Coles or Sears, not that crowded, more elegant, a lot of space. People spend a lot of money on Fifth Avenue, St. Block, as Trump Tower. Here's a great summary of the case from CBS 2's Alice Gaynor in New York. E. Jean Carroll took the stand telling the jury, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me. The 79-year-old advice columnist says as she was exiting Bergdorf Goodman one night in 1996, he was entering. Hey, you are that advice lady. She replied, hey, you're that real estate tycoon. He asked for her advice to help buy a woman a gift. She suggested a handbag or hat, but he said lingerie. Carol says he was personable and engaging, very joshing and light, and that she was flirting. She testified he grabbed a lacy bodysuit and told her to try it on. She replied, you put it on. It's your color. We were having a good time joking. I thought he would. He said, let's try this on, and brought her to the dressing room. She says he shut the door, shoved her against a wall. She hit her head. Carol says she was laughing as they walked in and continued to laugh because I thought it was a mistake. She pushed him and stamped her feet, she says, making it clear she didn't want anything to happen. But he pulled her tights down, she alleges, and raped her. Eventually, Carol says she got a knee up into him and was able to leave. At the start of the encounter, she testified that she thought this was a funny New York scene, a story to tell everybody after, but it turned absolutely dark. She became emotional, saying she felt shame and blamed herself, that she should have screamed. It left me unable to have a romantic life again. The former store manager of Bergdorf Goodman during that time period testified it was not uncommon for the floor lingerie was on to be empty and dressing room doors left open. Trump posted on social media this morning that the case is a made-up scam and that her lawyer is a political operative, among other things. The judge told his lawyers Trump's recent posts were entirely inappropriate and could bring more legal troubles. Anyway, back to E. Jean's podcast. Her storytelling is superb. Hunter S. Thompson, who lived in Woody Creek, Colorado, was her buddy. He also was a degenerate. She hung around with him. And she reported on the great journalist who ended up killing himself. He had horrible habits, but what a life he led. And she got me interested as she described at the beginning of her podcast the story she was about to tell. And after you hear this, you will hear the rest of my show, Ken Toltz, Our Man in Israel, our troubadour Dave Gunners, 
from Louisiana with his song, Set the Tone. During my talk with Dave Gunders, you will hear the schedule of Hunter S. Thompson as relayed by his biographer, E. Jean Carroll, who is an amazing person who is about to be part of American history. Here's E. Jean Carroll from her podcast, Ask E. Jean. This was recorded, I think, just a couple of years ago. Hello, 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 hello. This is E. Jean Carroll. How do you do? I'm a journalist. And this is the oral biography of Hunter S. Thompson, part one. Now, I have heard uh, the biographers of uh, George Washington, Catherine the Great, Voltaire, Roosevelt, etc., uh, etc., et say they would give anything, anything, if they could meet their subjects in the flesh so they could ask them questions. Now, I, on the other hand, would be happy if Hunter S. Thompson, one of the greatest journalists and certainly the greatest degenerate of the 20th century, if Hunter Thompson, the author of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, if my friend Hunter had just held a few things back from me. For instance, let's look at his daily schedule. And by the way, I know this has been printed all over the internet for years. Let me get a sip of wine. This list, which I'm about to give you, has been posted forever. Okay? This is a big thing. People have written to me uh, over the years, asked uh, to make recordings of it, asked to set it to rock and roll songs, asked to put it in a symphony, asked to put it in a play. I've always said no, no, no. And so I am going to read it to you right now. My gosh, what a show this is. Ken Toltz gets it going with a great discussion about Colorado and Israel from Israel while I'm in Colorado. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. The war on drugs has never been more serious. There are killer substances out there, including fentanyl, 
If God forbid you know somebody or a loved one of yours has been affected by fentanyl, perhaps my law firm could help. Sometimes there's justice in the criminal court system, other times civil justice. My number, 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Gosh, it's good to have him back. We had him on episode 37, 48, 95. He is an expert on so many things. He's our man in Israel. His name, Ken Toltz. Kenny, welcome back to the show. Craig, so good to see you and so good to be here. And uh, again, boy, that Craig Silverman show is really racking up uh, the episodes, isn't it? With uh, you're, you're approaching 200 pretty soon. What do you attribute that success to? Holy cow, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't give any Ken O'Horas. Um, it's just my tenacity, OCD. It's a uh, great assistance from my producer. Um, but you are a master of media. And let's not talk about 200. Let's get to 150. That's a pretty big deal. Don't go past that. Excellent. But let's talk about our man in Israel with the Denver Roots that go deep. You've got quite a website. Uh, just you've got a unique name too, T-O-L-T-Z. How do you tell people to find you online? And now that you are a master of Twitter, that's the way to go, right? Well, I, you know what I do on Twitter for my profile is I include a link to Medium. And I've been writing on Medium for a long time. And I wrote uh, an About Me article on Medium. So there's a link uh, to that on Twitter. There's a link to that on LinkedIn. And uh, I really cross-promote you know, the social media um, to make it easy to find me. But really, I just say to people, just put Ken Toltz in your Google machine. I'm an open book. And you can, you can read all about all the articles I've written over the years and the political causes I've worked on. Uh, and, uh, of course, some of my biographical background as well as a third generation, third generation Denver. Easy for you to say. Who's, you know, moved to Israel, uh, almost four years ago now to become a citizen and what they call here, Ole Hadash. All right. We already covered that when you were a star 37, 48, 95. The cool thing about the Google machine is that if you just put in Tolt Silverman, you'll get all those episodes. But we have to talk <laughs> about what's going on right now. You can binge, right? You can binge Tolt Silverman. You can kind of follow what happened. 37, the Boulder Massacre. Um, 48, uh, what was that? Oh, when BB was getting prosecuted and leaving office. 95, the invasion of Ukraine. We're going to get to all of that, but... Holy cow, it's Israel's birthday, 75. It should be festive. I don't feel that way, and I feel uninformed because there's so much shit going on in America, Kenny Toltz. Maybe you read about it now that you live over there, but tell us what's going on over there. I feel uninformed, enlighten us. What the hell is going on? Well, I do follow developments, of course, in America and, of course, in Colorado and even in Denver. Uh, But Israel is the most amazing, stimulating environment you could possibly live in. It is 
something happening here every minute, every hour. Uh, and it, this last several months has been just overwhelming in terms of the amount of activity. And I just want to say this up front. I've never been more hopeful and more optimistic about Israel's future or more inspired by Israelis than I am today. We have seen, we'll start tomorrow night, the 17th week of hundreds of thousands of citizen protesters in the streets for democracy. We call them pro-democracy protesters. I've joined them myself. I've been among them. And these are just citizens. These are people who finally said, I have to get off my couch and get involved to make a change in this country. And it's galvanizing and it's energizing. And as I said, it's very inspiring. Um, I can I can tell you more about what that's about. I can you know certainly talk about the most recent uh, developments. But I just did want to say up front that um, from my perspective, as somebody who's had a history with Israel that goes back over 40 years from when I studied here at Hebrew University uh, as a, a junior year abroad student from University of Colorado at Boulder back in the late 1970s. So I have a long, long history with Israel and, and with visiting Israel and working on behalf of Israel. I've never been more inspired by the Israeli people than I am today. Gosh, that's the best thing I've heard in a long time. Let's get to the roots and the analysis that leads to your optimism, your eyewitnessing, your earwitnessing, but let's kind of take it historically. Right, and participating as an Israeli citizen, right. as an American, as a Denverite. It's unbelievable. You're being our man in Israel. Let's go back to Bibi Netanyahu. I confess how wrong I've been about so many things, including my attendance, my rapture. I don't use that word very often, but <laughs> I said rapture when I was in the House chambers and Bibi Netanyahu was giving what I thought was the greatest speech in modern Jewish history. They'll be talking about this for centuries, and I'm in the room where it happened, courtesy of Jared Polis, and now I'm thinking, holy cow, what did I enable? What did I encourage? What did I bet? How wrong was I about Bibi Netanyahu? Um, turns out uh, he's been charged, he's being prosecuted. Let's start there, Kenny. Tell us about the prosecution of Bibi Netanyahu, because it started about, what, about 18 years ago, and it's still not over? What the hell? <laughs> well, as I say about the Israeli justice system, the wheels turn very slowly when they ever turn at all. Well, now, what, uh, what's going on with the cases? Bibi Netanyahu is currently on trial. There is an ongoing trial. He has three criminal indictments hanging over his head. For now, what? You'd think, uh, a, a, you'd think a, classi a classy politician would step aside and say, I really need to get my trial resolved and the verdict in before I occupy the prime minister's office again, but not Netanyahu. So he has continued to be both on trial for bribery, breach of trust, and the third one is has an, an un, unusual name, but they're all essentially criminal corruption charges. There he's on the he's on the take for money. Is that it? Oh yeah, he's he's taken a lot of money. He, they've taken gifts from very wealthy supporters. Uh, but the thing that bothered me the most is he tried to make a deal to buy one of the media outlets, 
mm-hmm. and essentially to bribe the publisher of the media outlet by getting him some getting someone to buy him out and to make sure that he got good media coverage. He was he was obsessed with his media coverage and he felt that people were misperceiving what he was trying to do because the media was against him. This is before Trump. So he he kind of, you know, cut a path for how to use grievance politics uh, and to blame the media for everything. It's the authoritarian uh, playbook. Yeah, it's horrible. But uh, I mean, at least he didn't rape anybody or talk about that. Right. I mean, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have any um, of those kinds of personal uh, attributes that you say he really is just, he's a narcissistic personality. And, um, you know, the way he's treated and has been treated for years and years, just like what you were talking about in 2015, when he came to the U.S. Congress, invited by John Boehner, the Republican, to embarrass Barack Obama, the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he got millions or you know, he got several standing ovations during that speech. I'm sure that's what you remember is the very positive way I he was received. I led those standing ovations. I led them. I was up there. I started yelling, yay. I thought I was at a Broncos game. I didn't know the decorum. You can hear me. I apologize. Keep going. And and let's let's face it, um, to have a prime minister of Israel before a joint session of Congress is something to be proud of in general, right? Right. It's, it's historic. And it, it should have been an, an event to be proud of. But the purpose of his speech and what he did was he was there specifically to embarrass Barack Obama no, about the Iran deal? I didn't think it was that. Finished. I thought he was there to warn us about impending doom via Iran and their nuclear weaponry. Well, you're you're not being uh, as uh, maybe as observant as as I was about the politics of that. You know, the Republicans controlled the House during that session. And Barack Obama had made a major effort to make a deal with Iran to stop their nuclear research uh, towards a nuclear weapon, when actually no president before Barack Obama had done anything. So he was the first one to tackle a very, very complex problem. And uh, Bibi Netanyahu used the opportunity to burnish his credentials as the person who should have been consulted and should have been in the driver's seat on that deal. And he wasn't. He wasn't. Oh, wait, in the but, but, but before I give up, I have a star witness on this argument, and his name is Bibi Netanyahu. Oops. Yeah. I, I was I totally misled. I mean, is Iran a nuclear danger to Israel or not? I don't think anybody uh, would disagree that they're a threat to Israel. That the. Uh, Islamic regime that controls the country has made it a top priority to continually threaten Israel and that they have pursued nuclear research consistently for many years. Even back, you know, when I was with APAC many, many years ago, we were up on the hill talking about Iran and nobody was listening for many, many years. It took a long time to gain any traction to confront what Iran was doing. Uh, and this, you know, this goes back to the history of what happened in, in the revolution and the hostage crisis. And the U.S. was embarrassed by that whole the way that ended up. And confronting Iran was not the top priority. And then especially after 9-11, the emphasis was on Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, Iran was flying a little bit under the radar with what they were doing. And Israel kept saying, you know, they're 
doing this nuclear research and we need to stop them. And finally, an American administration took it, took the bulls by the horn and started negotiations with the other major powers. It was called the P5 plus six uh, that negotiated that deal with Iran. But in the P5 plus six, did not include Israel. So Israel was not at the table negotiating with Iran. And I think Bibi was essentially feeling left out and uh, somewhat, you know, cast aside. So he made it his mission. If you remember, he did a, a speech before the UN General Assembly where yes. he held up a cartoon yes. of a bomb. And he said, you know, within t- 20 With the minutes, red line. That right. This is this is going to be this is what's happening. Yeah, um, scared the so, shit out of me. And he used Nazi comparisons. So I, I don't want to underplay the, the threat from Iran. I just want to highlight that there's a pol- well, very political well, aspect to I, this. I, I understand, but let's try to stay twenty twenty three. Okay, okay. not history. You live there. Okay. Do you feel scared that Iran's going to do something to you? I think in the back of my mind, you know, for sure, I think the biggest threat uh, on the horizon is Iran, but the, sh- the closer threats are right here at home. You know, we have uh, two internal, million internal or, or uh, on no, your border. No, not internal, but what uh, uh, the occupied West Bank is two million Palestinians mm-hmm. who've lived under military government for, you know, since 1967. And they are not happy with their situation, with their lack of freedom and their lack of self-governance. And some, and the way they're treated sometimes is very harshly. They, ha- they live under a military government. Right. Uh, and how, we have terrorism much, right, occurring but, constantly. But, right? but how much is uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran contributing to Hamas and Hezbollah and those guys on the border? Yes, you're you're correct. Now, Hamas is the political group that controls Gaza, which is you know the border between Israel and Egypt. There's another almost two million Palestinians who live in that area that is completely surrounded, uh, and they cannot leave. They have no freedom of movement, um, and this is again another situation that's been going on years and years and years. And I think what's happened, Craig, is there used to be this thing that we talked about called the peace process. And after many years and terrorism and horrible, uh, you know, deaths and, and trauma, there's been a general feeling among Israelis that the Palestinians aren't really interested in peace there. And we don't have a partner to negotiate with. So this is, uh, you know, these things that we're talking about are underlining Israeli politics of 2023. All right. I am the furthest thing from an expert on Israel. I went there for a hectic week, broadcast from the Jerusalem Post building, got shuffled from the Negev up to the Golan. Uh, Holy cow. I, I, I don't know what's going on in the politics there or anything like that. But I'm geared to loving it and thinking in my brief experience that their civil rights were about 20 or 30 years behind the United States. People didn't live in the same neighborhoods. And I thought maybe it will become like the U.S. This is back when I thought the U.S. had gotten over our racial divides. Are there any parallels to that, Ken told, or is it totally different? 
No, I think there are some parallels because Israel is a young democracy. And we were just talking about this because we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence this week. And while 75 seems like a pretty big number, if you were like me, I celebrated Israel 30 when I was studying at Hebrew University. That was a really small number of years to be as uh, existing as a state. So 75 feels like a major accomplishment and a much more uh, mature country. But in reality, the problems are still as if this was 1967 or 1977. They, they haven't been able to resolve these problems, and it's resulted in trauma and, and death uh, and a lot of grievance that's built up over many, many years. And it's really affected the politics to the extent that Israel is really divided. And that's what you're seeing today is a division on the basis of right-wing politics versus more uh, progressive politics, which is both around internal issues and the issues of what to do with our Palestinian neighbors and our, our Arab citizens of Israel. There's 2 million Arab citizens of Israel who vote in the elections and are you know, within the boundaries of the state of Israel. Our citizens, some of them serve in the army, some of them uh, work in hospitals and pharmacies and so on. Um, and But the, Israel has really not come to terms culturally with integrating uh, an, an Arab population. And, and that's, that is an ongoing area that we can do much better of figuring out how do we maintain the Jewish aspects of this state, the state to protect the Jewish people and to be a safe haven, and also as the Declaration of Independence said, equality of rights for everybody, regardless of their nationality, their race, their creed, their sex. So some of what you're seeing today in the streets, and I just bring it back to 2023, is the, the uh, citizens of Israel rejecting the right-wing uh, emphasis that we need to change the structure of government here so that there is, is no... Uh, opportunity for the Supreme Court to overturn laws of the parliament and that the parliament can pass uh, laws that discriminate and the Supreme Court will be powerless to overturn them. All right. And back that, to, that's yeah, what's yeah, at stake yeah. right now. Yeah. Back to BB for a moment. It feels like this is personal, just like Trump. We've got a similar authoritarian figure and the BB is self-motivated. Nothing focuses the mind like the prospect of going to prison. You told us about the three indictments. If he gets convicted, will he go to prison? Well, two former prime ministers have gone to prison mm -hmm. and a former president of Israel have gone to prison. So as you can see over my left shoulder, I have a protest sign uh, that I keep in my kitchen here that says no one is above the law. Um, and there is a feeling that Bibi has conducted himself over all these years as if he is the law or above the law, and everything he does is legal and no one can challenge it. And that, boy, if that sounds like Trump, you're right. That's exactly parallel to Trump. I mean, what kind of money are we talking about? It, to me, it feels like Clarence Thomas. That kind of corruption, fancy this, fancy that. Over the years, it adds up to maybe a couple million bucks, uh, maybe some real estate deals for a million bucks. Are we talking small potatoes or big potatoes? Well, we're talking both. For personal gain, uh, he and his wife have accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifts, quote unquote, from a couple of very, very wealthy supporters of Israel. 
Um, and in return, he helped his friends, one of whom is Arnon, Arnon Milken, the Hollywood filmmaker, uh, to maintain his citizenship in the United States. So he used his political power to benefit one person. That is directly uh, corrupt. That's self-interest corruption. And then taking gifts uh, and not reporting those is another area of breach of trust is what they call it. But as I said, the, one of the other crimes that he's, um, they, you know, he's been charged and he's on trial for is uh, trying to essentially bribe media figures to give him better coverage. And he uses the money from his friends to make business deals on behalf of these media companies. He changes the media laws and he uh, wants to control the media so that everything that's reported is the way he wants it reported. Um, and Israelis are really sick and tired of Bibi Netanyahu. They, uh, a large number of Israelis uh, have uh, their, their theme is called Lech in Hebrew, uh, which means go. Ha. Just go already. And you'll see T-shirts and signs and logos all over the place. It says the Hebrew word lech, which means go. And in English, phonetically, that would be L-E-C-H, right? L-E-C-H. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Hebrew phrase. I'm like a preschooler. What is it? Lech lecha? Where have I right. heard? What does lech lecha yeah. mean? Uh, well, lech is go. Yes, lecha. And... Um, uh, you'll, lecha, you'll have to ask my Ulpan teacher. I think it should be a Yiddish expression uh, to Bibi. <laughs> I think it's go already. <laughs> uh, how about gay cockin? That's what my dad would say. Maybe your dad too. Doesn't that well, mean? Well, they both grew up on the west side of Denver, and uh, I'm sure they gay means some go cockin. You can figure that out, right? Anyway, <laughs> but what you know, I wanted to make sure that um, listeners to your show who have seen these. Big, the media of these big protests understand what actually is going on here, that these are citizen protests. And that's why I say that I am very hopeful and optimistic. I've been a political activist, as you know, Craig, my entire life, since I was a high school kid and went to work at the state legislature. And I can recognize citizen political activism that makes change. So what I'm seeing in Israel today over these last several months and it's happening in my neighborhood. I was out talking to them today. There was a protest in my neighborhood today. These are people who don't consider themselves involved in politics. They're not party people. Uh, they're going about their day-to-day -day life, doing the best they can, raising their children, you know, enjoying life in Israel. And they have gotten uh, become so uh, worried about the future of the state that they've taken it upon themselves to start these protests and demonstrations. And they're doing it by the hundreds of thousands, very creatively, very positively. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, compared to other protests that I've seen, there's no vandalism, there's no violence, mm -hmm. there's no destruction. You see entire families coming out. Are um, you using the right is, framework, is Kenny? Are you using the right framework because you're talking like a Denverite and American, but to stay in your new neighborhood? What about Cairo? Arab Spring, people coming. Yeah. I mean, I, I you are in that neighborhood. So, so tell me how this turns out great. Well, what I think uh, is, I think all over the world, people are seeing a protest in huge numbers for democracy. 
like never before um, and in creative and creative ways of demonstrating. So, you know, for example, uh, at the main protest that happens in Tel Aviv happens when Shabbat is over sundown on Saturday night. And they come out by 100 to 200,000 people to one street in Tel Aviv. They have a speakers. But one of the other things that they do is they have these humongous uh, banners that you can only see from the sky. And they have drones overhead photographing these banners. And then they change the banners during the protests, during the, the event itself. They're projected on big screens. They're shown in the media. And it's a, a very unique way of uh, that I've never seen media being used for uh, protests before with huge, with big graphics and a mm -hmm. few words. Um, so I, I think that the democracy protests that are going on in Israel are going to be inspiring, especially if they're as successful as it has been so far. And it has been successful. There's no doubt about it. Bibi has had to pull his legislation off the table. Um, he has had to cancel public events. Um, they've had they've had to um, uh, go to the under the auspices of the president to negotiations about their proposals, and they they could have passed it because they had the votes, right? But they were afraid to pass it. And if you remember, just a few weeks ago, he fired his defense minister, right? Right, remember but, but, but it's all it's all minister. kind of in a state of uh, suspension, and we're all and then he fired him. Right. He unfired him. He literally I, I, went on TV I know. and said, right. I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let him go because of the protesters. That's why he had to unfire his defense minister. They went out that uh, spontaneously on the night that he announced that he was firing his defense minister. My neighbor was just telling me this, this story. She was at an event in Jerusalem. She got a message on her WhatsApp from her daughter who said, do you know what's happening in Tel Aviv right now? She says, no, I'm in the opera said, well, you've got to walk out of there and see it. And people just walked out to the streets to this central location when they heard what had happened. They decided they had to gather and they had right. to have their voices heard that this is not acceptable. Yeah, so, it's, it's small victories. It's inspiring. By the way, Lech Lecha, that's why we should have studied in Hebrew school. Genesis 12, 1, go forth, right? Multiply, ah, bring forth. us about Lech Lecha. Anyway, that's why you're there in the land of Canaan. Uh, uh, Abraham, he was in Beersheba, not that far from you. Uh, but we keep hearing about civil war talk in Israel. So tell me, is the civil war going on right now? Will it be pe peaceful? Because I can imagine how creative the Jews of Israel have gotten, how organized we see the huge rallies, but what happens uh, if force is used? Has there been any conflict between the police and the demonstrators? How has that gone? There definitely has been incidents, but uh, the incidents, because of the prevalence of cell phones and social media, are immediately put on social media. And because of the scrutiny um, in a democratic country, They've been harshly criticized if they've used excessive force. And the, sometimes the police have used excessive force. So there's been incidents where they brought out the fire hoses, you know, kind of thing, the truck with the, with the water to try to get people not to block the highways. And uh, so there's been civil disobedience like blocking the highway. But as I said, there hasn't been vandalism. There hasn't been destruction. 
there hasn't been the kinds of things we saw in the Black Lives Matter protests, the George Floyd protests in America. Um, and no, I don't but, but, but you, you, that you, you're going right. Here. You're going right past blocking the highway. That was a big deal when they did that on 225. We found out since that some of that was provoked by the FBI, that sort of thing. Is that going on with Netanyahu's government? Are they trying to infiltrate this? Are they trying to uh, stop it? Are there counter-protesters? Tell us about that. Well, they haven't tried to stop, but you're right. There have been uh, in instances of infiltration and people causing trouble within the protest. Um, and so I believe that protest groups are aware that this can happen and to be very careful. Uh, if somebody's trying to lead a, you know, let's go light a fire in the middle of the street kind of thing. Who mm -hmm. is that person? Are they really with us or were they planted by the right wing to try to cause trouble? Um, but when you have this many people protesting for this length of time and no major destruction of property other than blocking the highway for a couple hours, that's that's really significant as a, a political activism for in a peaceful way. Um, but just yesterday, Craig, the right wing held its own protest and they marched in Jerusalem. Uh, and the, the numbers are in the hundreds of thousands that came. And these are the Netanyahu supporters. I mean, he's got his support base. There's no doubt about it. The true believers, we call them the Bibiists. Um, then their phrase is in Hebrew, rock Bibi, which is means only Bibi. Um, they are truly loyal to him and anything he wants to do or say they feel is on their behalf. Uh, but there's, they, they're not confronting so far face-to-face -face with the pro-democracy protesters. It could happen. It's something that I'm, I worry about myself when I see these large numbers of people that it only takes, you know, a couple of, of incidences to light uh, a flame that, you know, can burn out of control really quickly. But um, I, I remain optimistic because I've, I've spent a lot of time in political activism and with these people and realize they're just your average, you know, neighbors who really are basically like tired is tired of hell and not going to take it anymore and really want to make the changes in this country that it needs to make so that Israel 150, we're celebrating peace side by side with our Arab neighbors. And we've got peace agreements with all the surrounding Arab countries and Israel is a place that people come and visit uh, and feel completely safe and secure. Now, what percentage that's, that's of vision. those? What percentage of those people who took to the streets of Jerusalem on Thursday are uh, ultra Orthodox Jews? Well, the, it, it's interesting. The ultra Orthodox Jews, which here they say they call them Haredi, they put out statements saying, "Don't go," because we're not we're not we're not part of this fight. And so the, the large numbers came from the settler community in the West Bank. And when I'm uh, talking about that, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of people who live in uh, communities that have been built since 1977, really, since Menachem Begin became prime minister. Um, and they live in the you know disputed territory, which some people call occupied, some people call Judea and Samaria. Mm -hmm. Um, but the Arab citizens who live in those areas do not have the same rights as the Arabs who live uh, in the, within the green line of Israel, the old borders. They cannot vote in Israeli elections. Um, you and I are old enough to remember. Army. Yeah, you and I are old enough to remember Menachem Begin. 
And holy cow, that means that these settlers are about our age. A lot of them grandparents or maybe even more, the rate they have kids. And what are they producing? What's the average uh, uh, child uh, to family ratio out there? Yeah, it's definitely much larger uh, families than the, I guess you would call them the secular Israeli community that don't live in those communities and are not what they usually describe themselves as modern Orthodox or religious Zionists. And yes, they have larger families so that they're growing faster. um, But their economy in terms of housing has been subsidized over all these years and subsidized by organizations in the United States as well, who send large amounts of money for ideological reasons, because in their view, this is uh, land that God granted to Jews. Yeah. And they feel that yeah. regardless of the fact that Arabs lived there for hundreds of years, that does that should not be taken into account. Right. I don't happen to agree and I don't I don't live there, I wouldn't live there, but I, I know people who live there mainly for economic reasons. They commute to their jobs in other parts of Israel. Sounds like El Paso County. No, I'm just kidding about that. But when they said look, look and go forth and multiply our brethren took them more seriously than those of us produced, for me, two kids. That's about the average. And they go for eight or nine. And after a few generations, there are a lot of people. And you're telling me that's who was on the streets of Jerusalem, by and large, supporting Bibi the other day? Right, right. Um, and and, and, and just to go back to it, because it's gotten to okay. a point that I don't really quite follow, but I'm starting to think that some people kind of regard Bibi as a cult leader? Do they? Do any of them deify him and say he's like David or he's like this or that? He's sent by God? Well, they chant Bibi king of Israel. So yes, they do. He, he, he does have a cult-like following. Uh, and that Hebrew phrase that I said, rock Bibi, really means that nobody can do this job except for Bibi Netanyahu. And as we know, in politics and in life, nobody lasts forever. That is this so extend to his kids? Does he have kids who are involved? Doesn't he have one Meshuggah's son? He has a son who was banished uh, out of Israel just a couple of weeks ago and told to stay off Twitter. His name is Yair. What do you mean uh, banished out of Israel? He has to leave the country? His his. I think his no, not by not by the country, but by his parents asked him to please lech lecha. <laughs> go forth somewhere where we don't see you or know you or oh, wow. yeah, because what you're doing is causing more service than it's worth. Why? You're not helping you're not helping. He's on social media demonizing uh the protesters and calling them anarchists and traitors. And that just, you know, doesn't go well with people who fought in the IDF and lost you know, friends and relatives in the wars here. They don't want to be called anarchists and traitors, right? They are true 100% lovers of Israel and Israeli citizens, and they're pro-democracy and anti-BB's judicial reform. Does he have and a... I, I was does, thinking, does, what's his name? Yair Netanyahu. And, and does he you have can a, find him on Twitter. Does he have a following? Yeah, definitely has a following. In, in Israel, is it militant? Uh, you know, I think he's very influential among younger Israelis who are tend to go towards the right wing. Yeah, I think he definitely, I don't know what his Twitter followers are, but I'll bet it's pretty significant. Wow. 
Okay, when you are part of these rallies, do you feel afraid? No, I feel totally inspired. I I went this past Saturday night, and I literally went early enough so I could be in the very front where the speaker's podium was because somebody that I knew was going to be making a speech, and I wanted to be close enough to see her. And behind me, by the time I left, for blocks and blocks, it was just solid people. Solid. There were so many people. It was it was just an unbelievable. But I never felt like the crowd was had anything but a positive energy, um, and was not looking to do violence. There was no hate. It was these people love Israel. They love Israel so much that they want to perfect it, and they want to take the responsibility. And because they're sick and tired of a government that's ideologically driven, and is you know leading us down a pathway that has been. The same thing year after year after year, no resolution to real problems. Uh, and these problems mount up and people get frustrated and they're they're really tired of it. So I, I was thinking when you uh, did the translation of Lech Lecha from the Bible, uh, that's, that's such an Israeli thing to do is to take a biblical phrase and use it for a political purpose and take out the Lech Lecha and just do Lech because everybody here understands where that comes from. And that idea of going forth and what they're saying to Bibi is go forth already, right? Go away. Well, tell me about the people. Tell me about the people at the rallies. Young, old, men, women. Are there Sephardic, Ashkenazi? And what about Arab Israeli citizens? Are they intermixed or how does that go? Uh, Well, there are some people who, uh, if you've seen pictures, you've seen tons of Israeli flags. And then there are some people who carry um, rainbow-colored Israeli flags for uh, LBGTQ rights. There are some people who carry Palestinian flags to say we can't that we can't be a democratic country if there's not democracy for Palestinians, and they want to make sure that that's part of the agenda of the protests. I'd say they're a very uh, small number at this point, but I, it's on the agenda. Um, but no, it's it's amazing. I took some pictures. It's you know, mothers bringing children, uh, fathers and mothers pushing strollers. Uh, it's like a family outing to be part. And I think they really feel like they need to be part of it. And they want their kids to, to be a part of something that is definitely historic. You, do, you get the feeling of what's going on here is historic change. So when is the next vote? When will democracy work in Israel? Because it's not working that great here. We'll get to that, but keep going. About Israel, yeah. Well, he's he's in the first year of his of his term, um, and he's got sixty four votes in the Knesset, so he controls the agenda and he controls the Knesset. Uh, it's you have to have sixty one votes to have a majority. So the what's happened here over these last several years is government uh, coalition members quit and the government falls, and that's. The more likely thing to happen is this government will fall. There's no uh, timetable when that could happen. And his trial goes on and on and on. And there's no sense that there's going to be a verdict in his trial anytime soon. It could be years for a verdict in his trial. So if he's if he doesn't want to quit and they want to keep pushing this, what they call judicial reform, uh, that's why there's been 17 weeks of protest. There's no end in sight. 
there's no resolution right now that you could see on the horizon and say, okay, I see exactly where this is going and how it's going to end. And that's one of the historic, you know, nature's feelings about this is that you cannot, you cannot predict for sure what's going to happen next. You are an um, expert. Just, yeah, go ahead. I'm well, sorry. I wanted to mention there was a big meeting that I attended this week in Tel Aviv. The Jewish Federations of North America held their general assembly, which is delegates from all over North America who give money through the federation system, a large chunk of which goes to support Israel. And they had their national meeting scheduled way in advance that's called the General Assembly for Tel Aviv because of the 75th anniversary. They thought this would be a historic occasion. I registered for that because there was a delegation from Colorado, from the Jewish Federation of Colorado, which they call Jewish Colorado, was coming. And I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to meet them and see them. And so I was on the list. And I got an email several weeks ago from the organizer saying, we're so proud to announce Bibi Netanyahu is going to be giving the welcoming speech on Sunday night. Well, long story short, Bibi Netanyahu canceled his welcoming speech three hours before didn't show up, didn't send a representative, didn't even send a video to the most committed supporters of Israel who came all the way from America to be here to support Israel on its 75th anniversary. Uh, I think that was a real sign of the success of the pro-democracy protests, that he understands that it, they've, uh, it's been infiltrating into support of Israel abroad, including America, and that uh, his reputation among the diaspora Jewry is significantly declined since 2015 in that House of Representatives speech that you attended. Were you going to be in the room where he was supposed to speak? Yes, I, w I was there. And what were, you, what were you prepared to do? Were you going to boo and boo loudly? Uh, well, the, what, what the groups that I'm part of said they wanted to do a silent protest, which means you stand up and turn your back. And were you going to do that? Now, that's a very respectful protest. Right? I, I'm not saying it isn't. Were you, you going to do it? Sure, I would have done that. And, and, I would have and done how, how many people do you think would have done it? Oh, if I had to guess, I'd say about 25% of the crowd would have how big known of a about crowd? that and would have done it. There were, there were supposed to be 3,000 delegates from America there. And there. I think there was closer to, to 2,500. But because the room wasn't 100 mm percent -hmm. full, but it was a large convention center in Tel Aviv. Um, and I'll tell you who spoke very, very well was the president of Israel, uh, Yitzhak Herzog, who comes from a very famous Israeli family. And he did a wonderful speech and uh, acknowledging exactly what's going on here. There's no sugarcoating it. We're in a very divisive atmosphere. And he's trying to lead a dialogue. And that was his speech was about dialogue and about listening to each other and how important it is that we take the opportunity to listen to each other. So the president of Israel uh, did what the president should do was to take the high road. He didn't cast blame on anyone. Right. He said, we all have love of Israel in common. And in order to move forward, we have to listen to each right. other. We're a family. And that that yeah, message goes we're, 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 Yeah. I got it. Keep going. I, I apologize. Yeah, exactly. we're a family. But uh, I don't have much experience with those GAs, but holy cow, I went to several APACs in D.C. 
I usually, as part of my radio assignment, I assigned it to myself, but it was great. I had press credentials, and I heard Netanyahu speak there, too, and I witnessed it through the years. Such a powerful organization, a blend of Democrats, Republicans. You already brought up that you were a big part of AIPAC. I am so caught up in the fight to keep American democracy that I've sort of lost track Bring me up to speed on APAC and where they are on all of this. So you're, you're lost. It's too complicated to follow. No, I just APAC uh, to me has become sort of irrelevant in my mind. They. Uh, oh, 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 oh! I see what you're they, saying. They, 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 yeah. they've fallen apart through dissension. They can't get along anymore. Trump ruined APAC, just they, like everything else he touches. Well, and and they changed their format. If you remember last year, they became a political action committee and a super PAC, and they started playing electoral politics with big money contributions. Right. Um, I wrote an article about that uh, as well, uh, about that that's a very high risk and low return strategy. Because you can't buy support for Israel. You have to win the case on the merits that it's in America's best interest to support Israel. And if you can't win the case on the merits, and the only way you can win friends is through making contributions to their campaigns, that's an unsustainable model. So is APAC finished, Ken? Or is it something completely different from what we remember? Uh, no, APEC is is relevant in terms of lobbying for the key pieces of legislation that affect the, the relationship between the United States government and Israel, and that's mainly the foreign aid bill, and uh, you know efforts to provide funding to various programs in Israel, um, and to the Palestinians as well. So APEC's relationships in Congress are still uh, very valuable. Uh, they. They say they're bipartisan, although they've been leaning more heavily Republican. And uh, this change is is only one year old, so it's too early to say, is it successful or is it a disaster? I happen to think it's highly risky, and that in the long term it, it can't be it can't be successful because you just can't buy support for Israel. All right, let's go to dangerous territory because I like this guy. Larry Meisel has been nothing but nice to me, and he's been a big benefactor of Colorado Jewry and a lot of correct causes. But I don't like his support of Lauren Boebert. I can't stand that he was in bed with Trump, but it appears now he's in bed with Ron DeSantis, who just gave a speech as, what was it, last night in Israel to commemorate the 75th birthday, and there with him, Colorado's own Larry Meisel. And you know Ron DeSantis is close to the guy because he pronounces his name correctly, Larry Meisel, M-I-Z-E-L. Ken, you have to know him pretty darn well. What's going on there? Well, yeah, of course I've known Larry Meisel for decades. Uh, and, um, and he's got friends, uh, in the Republican party that he's has built relationships for decades as well. Um, he's always said to me that he only has one issue that he really cares about and that's support for Israel. Um, and he's been the, uh, a liaison from APAC and supporters of Israel to Republicans. And he's done a very good job of that, of building relationships 
And I think what's interesting about this meeting that you mentioned and the invitation to Ron DeSantis is that Ron DeSantis is not a declared candidate for president, but Donald Trump is. And right now, as you know, Donald Trump is the is the uh, leading figure in the Republican Party. And you'd have to say all bets are that he'll win the nomination if he stays out of jail uh, for the next 18 months. So Larry Meisel uh, holding a event at his Museum of Tolerance that he's been building for 20 years in Jerusalem, which is an amazing, amazing facility, an amazing accomplishment, um, and inviting Ron DeSantis, I th- to me, sends a signal to pro-Israel Republicans that it's okay to support another candidate besides Trump. Quite a signal. What is Trump's popularity there in Israel? I mean... For a while there, American Jews, by and large, could not stand him, yet Israeli Jews liked the guy. Is that still the case? Well, I think his, the, what do you call the bloom has come off the rose when it comes to Donald Trump. But I would say if you took a public opinion poll, you'd still have a majority, he would have a favorable uh, public opinion rating in, among Israelis. Because of specific policies that his administration implemented, such as moving the embassy, United States embassy to Jerusalem, such as recognizing the Golan Heights annexation as legal, um, such as cutting off funding for um, the Palestinian Authority when they felt like they were being uh, negative and trying to put pressure on them to come to the table, such as closing the um, U.S. consulate uh, that office that reaches out to Palestinians. Those things were all popular among many, many Israelis. And they felt that Donald Trump was out front. And of course, his son-in-law is Jewish. His daughter-in-law converted to Judaism. He has Jewish grandchildren. So um, they don't, those are the things that register with Israelis. They're not, they don't register his, what happened on January 6th. Um, or any of his other legal peccadilloes or, you know, the corruption in, of, of his own uh, family. Um, what, 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 about, that, what about his Thanksgiving dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West? Did that make the news in Israel? And what kind of Jews yes. want to oh, be yes. a, it, it, a part it, it, of it, Donald Trump after that? It definitely made news in Israel, but um, I think Israelis look at deeds more than they do at symbol symbolic meetings. So moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which many presidents had promised for many, many years, and only one guy actually did it, counts for a lot. Wow. And they so don't it's, view it's, him it's, as it's potentially like, an anti-Semite. Say that again. I'm sorry. They don't, they don't view him as a potential anti-Semite. What? They maybe view him as somebody who made a mistake and you know, they'll, they'll buy the, he didn't know who, who he was inviting kind of thing. There's very fine people on both sides kind of thing. Also, you know, Trump gets away with it. Do you agree with that? Or do you see racism and bigotry all over the guy? Um, I don't necessarily see anti-Semitism uh, among Trump. I just think he's a person of very low moral character that America deserves better than somebody like Donald Trump as president of the United States. That's interesting. I respect your opinion, but I I think there are warning signs there. And as the news tightens around him, 
I think he's the kind of guy who would talk crap about Jewish people. Do you think Richard Nixon was an anti-Semite? Well, Nixon, you know, we have him on tape. Right, <laughs> right, right. But, exactly but, but you, you, you said, people. yeah, but you said his deeds were wonderful. I mean, he saved Israel during the Yom Kippur War, right? And he had Henry Kissinger on board. But I just think Trump is probably saying that Jew rat, Michael Cohen, that, that Jew bastard, Merrick Garland. I just make him for that kind of guy. And, and so we're speculating, but let me ask you to speculate on how Israelis feel about Joe Biden. How do you think he's doing vis-a-vis Israel? You know, I think what's what it makes a difference when you're living in the country where Jews are sovereign and have the power and have the military. And so they don't really feel by some they don't feel threatened by some statements of anti-Semitism. They might feel disrespected and not accepted, but they don't feel threatened. So you understand the, the, the difference? Yes. You know, we just had the Independence Day celebration also this week, uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut. And the biggest thing that happens besides family barbecues is a military flyover all over the country. The Israel Defense Forces takes out the most amazing jets and they fly them around as close as you ever want to see them and you can hear them. And I was just talking to my uh, Israeli friend today, and he was telling me what a tremendous feeling of pride he gets when he sees those jets flying and the way they fly in formation and what they can do. And I, I really think that that culture there's a cultural difference when you grow up with the Israeli army as a Jewish army and the Jewish state has a Jewish police, um, and they feel empowered. So some so some cockamamie statement or somebody has dinner with some r- ridiculous person. It, it it's it's not taken seriously as a threat. Uh, what when Iran says we want to destroy Israel with a nuclear bomb, that is taken seriously as a threat. Wow, what an admission by Kenny Toltz, who's a fierce advocate for common sense gun reform, acknowledging that the Jewish attitude of we don't care if you call his names whatever is kind of born of the big guns, the big jets, the weaponry that the Israeli defense forces have and uh i mean might makes right i don't know i just find that so interesting coming from you kenny how isn't it the weaponry that gives israel the swagger well it's you know serving in the israeli defense forces as you know uh almost all israelis do if you're not ultra religious it's a it's a cultural shared cultural experience of learning to defend the country in which you live. And everybody serves for a year and a half or three years. They, you see people all everywhere you go wearing uniforms, young people wearing uniforms, giving national service in defense of Israel, to in the protection of Israel. And that's a very strong shared cultural attribute that we don't have in America. We, don't, we have a professional military and they stay on their bases. And we don't see them on a regular basis and we don't interact with them on a regular basis unless you're part of the military family. And there's a big difference culturally when you're serving and then you go on reserve duty and you re- once a month you go and get trained again and practice uh, that is part of the Israeli culture that's very noticeable. And that's why I wanted to make note of that Yom Hatzma'ut flyover 
because thousands and thousands of Israelis go to the coast to watch it. And I, I went down to the coast to watch it myself. And also just to watch the people and the way they react. It's not fireworks on 4th of July. This is military jets, F-15s, and uh, flying in formation as fast as you can imagine and as loud as you can imagine. And you can, you know, the technology and the destructive power of those uh, jets is very impressive. There's no doubt about it. You definitely want them on your side. Right. Don't you worry when you watch them that someday it might not be jets from your side? I don't know. We'll get to the world take. I want to stay on guns just for a minute. My gosh, you okay. are our man okay. in Israel and you've done a great job. Uh, just give us your view from over there. You're an expert and you can go to episode 37 when we talked after the Boulder Massacre, other massacres, schools, uh, anywhere you can think of. America has these mass killings via firearms. What's the view on all that from Ken Toltz in Israel? Uh, you know, I have two views because, as you know, gun violence prevention was my main political activity for 20 years since I ran for Congress during the time of the Columbine High School shooting in 1999. And I took that cause on and met many, many family members who had lost loved ones to random gun violence as you're talking about, which is worse today than when I left in 2019. I'm very, very pained by what's going on in America as far as gun violence, and including in Denver at East High School. It's horrific. Uh, Israel has gun violence. The attacks are tend to be uh, Arab Palestinians attacking randomly Israelis going about their day-to-day -day lives. Occasionally, they they take on soldiers, but many times they take on civilians. And we've just had recently some really horrific civilian murders using guns. Um, those perpetrators are never arrested and gone and go to trial. They are killed on the spot by either somebody from the security services or somebody who's who's carrying a gun who is trained in the IDF. And that is the way they deal with it in Israel. Um, I don't happen to like that situation because you don't always know. Like we had a, a guy drove a car into a crowd in Tel Aviv about two weeks ago. And it's immediately labeled a terrorist attack. Uh, the driver was ejected from his car. And before he could move, there were security people there with guns who shot him dead. So we have no idea. Maybe he had a mental breakdown Maybe he had a health issue that caused his car to go off in, in, off the street into a crowd. But um, nobody wants to investigate and find out. They just say, this is horrible. There was another terrorist attack. He's dead. Move on. Is everybody armed over there? That's the Peter Boyles. No, uh, no, no. No, I, I, no, I, I understand that. I, I was just about to ridicule Peter Boyles because he said so many stupid things, including... We need the Israeli model because over there, there's no gun crime because everybody uh, has a weapon. Tell the truth about who has a weapon no, and who doesn't that's, that's over totally there. It's totally false. I do. Very occasionally, I see somebody in a civilian setting, in civilian clothing, carrying a handgun. Uh, you know, uh, what we call um, open carry in the United States. 
it, but it's so seldom that you see that. And much more likely you'll see people, soldiers in uniform who are serving and they're supposed to carry their gun with them. So they, they're armed with their gun or uh, police officers or border patrol who are armed. So um, it's not a situation where civilians are taking out other civilians um, like what, ha or that there's gun crimes like the same that are happening in America. If there's mass uh, hor horrific traumatic mass murders here, it's terrorism and it's random and it's horrible and nobody ever forgets because this is such a small country that somebody always knows somebody who was affected, right? Right. It's uh, about the size of Colorado, though. So I'm not sure we know all the victims. Sadly, I know you keep up with that. Uh, but just before we leave that topic, that shoot first mentality, is that mm -hmm. on the part of uh, responding police officers, military, both? Well, I think it's part of the um, military culture that is trained into them that you are on the front lines with your, that's why you carry this arm that you are, you are here to protect the citizens of Israel. And if there's a threat, and it could be a deadly threat. You can, you're allowed to shoot your weapon and use your weapon, and you're hardly ever you're going to ever get prosecuted or even investigated for that. It has happened, and even in the past few years while I've been here, that have been there have been mistaken shootings mm -hmm. of civilian Arabs in the wrong place at the wrong time doing something that looked very suspicious and didn't stop. You know what they what they were doing, and they were confronted. Um, so it, it mistakes happen and the, you know, the deadly consequences for those mistakes happen and in, including a reporter, uh, was killed, uh, um, almost exactly a year ago, an Al Jazeera reporter who had reported for yeah, 25 with American, years. The with American citizenship. What the hell happened there? Yeah, that was a terrible situation. Um, and I've followed that story very, very closely. Um, in fact, I've met the family. Her family, I went to a memorial service for her. She was a Christian Arab community member from Jerusalem. What was her name? Jerusalem. Her name is Shireen Abu Akla. And Shireen was, as I said, reporting for Al Jazeera for 25 years. She was on TV. The Arab community, everybody knew her because she was already, she would always put herself in situations where dangerous things were going on. So she did not take risk. Um, she went out to cover what was happening in an uh, Arab city where uh, a military force of the Israelis were trying to arrest some people who were suspected of terrorism or arming terrorism. And she was inadvertently, according to the Israeli military, shot by um, Israeli forces who thought she was either on the wrong side or she was in, caught in crossfire and but there's been no accountability for that. And uh, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's similar to American gun violence because, you know, her, she's dead. Her colleagues are traumatized. Her family is traumatized forever. They know that she wasn't a terrorist. She didn't deserve to get killed. She was a professional doing her job as a journalist. And somebody made a mistake who had a gun and decided to shoot in her direction. So we don't really know, did he shoot in her direction on purpose or was it an accident? Um, and the Israeli military did conduct an investigation and said it was an accident. So 
that's the end of it as far as the Israelis are concerned. You know who it's else gets hurt? As as you know who else concerned. gets hurt? I, I get a little hurt hearing about Shireen. It hurts my affection for Israel. It hurts. I mean, the accumulated yes. blows against Israel, it's just made me, it's diminished my affection. What can I say? And that has to translate to a lot of people around the world, right? No doubt. It, it affects me as well. Um, that's why I've been interested in following the story. And um, that's why I went to the memorial service. Uh, that's why I've spoken to their family. Um to say on a human level, I can reach out and I can say, I'm so sorry. I know this is horrible and I'm Israeli and I don't hate you because you're an Arab. I wish you this never happened to your family. And I think there should be accountability for what happened. Uh, it's a stain. That, yeah. Yes, that, it's a stain. There's that, no sounds, doubt about it. that sounds like uh, me going to a victim's house after a tragedy and saying, gosh, I'm sorry this happened. And I'm going to be part of holding the right person accountable. You know that I did that job for 16 years. It impacted me quite a bit. You live in Israel now, and you have a big heart, Ken Toltz. And I know a big part of your heart is still in Denver, Colorado. You, you follow events, you come back, you visit. Is it the same? Talk to me about crime and how it feels to you when you you come back to visit? Uh, you know, I, I follow very closely, um, especially Colorado. And um, I followed very closely what happened at East High School in the last several weeks. Uh, that that impacted me 6,000 miles away because I could put myself in the position of families who have children at East High School and finding out that some student is coming to school with a gun and he's going to be patted down by teachers or administrators. What a what a crazy thing! Uh, why would why would somebody who's that dangerous be allowed to come to school in the first place? And why weren't there law enforcement people there empowered to check for the weapon? And then they, somebody ended up getting shot because of it. Um, that's just rank incompetence, and, and it traumatized. The whole East High School community and that part of Denver is traumatized by that. And from what I hear, there is continuing to be um, alarms called in and threats made by telephone and like their whole school year is ruined. Uh, and, you know, we can relate to that from George Washington High School standpoint. We were very lucky. I was I was actually uh, thinking this when you were having your conversation with our old friend, Steve Feinsilver. Um, and he was talking about his years, his decades of work at, East, at George Washington High School and working with the kids. And I kept thinking, boy, what if one of those things, one of those terrible school shootings would have happened to George Washington? What would be he be saying about that? And I feel like he's very lucky that that didn't happen to George Washington, because these things could have easily happened at any school. If it happens at Columbine, happens at Littleton, it happens at East, it could happen anywhere, as you know. Um, so the United States is not doing enough to prevent gun violence. They're not doing enough to keep people with a grievance from having easy access to gun and the culture, the gun culture is out of control. And as you mentioned, Lauren Boebert is definitely part of the problem and has never indicated that she wants to be part of the solution. So uh, it's very sad. Um, uh, I, but I, I feel 
there's a different atmosphere here in Israel where gun violence is, tends to be not criminal and not random, but terrorism uh, in a, of a political nature. And you think, well, if we can solve the political problem, they would have no reason to kill us, right? Uh, other people think they hate us and they just want all Jews dead. I don't happen to believe that. Um, I happen to believe they're human beings just like us and want the best for their kids and a better life for themselves and freedom of expression and, and freedom to live their lives. And that uh, we are, should be pu pushing to find solutions on a people-to-people -people basis because the political class has failed for decades. Two people who are trying to find solutions in Denver are Mike Johnston and Kelly Bruff. Kelly Bruff just got endorsed by Chris Hansen. She's at the Capitol Friday morning uh, getting his endorsement. And Jared Polis is signing four gun bills. Do they go far enough? Probably not. I'm disappointed that assault weapon ban did not make it through. But uh, you can offer a comment there and... I bet you have some thoughts about Mike Johnston versus Kelly Bruff. They've both been great guests. Mike, twice so far. Kelly may come back trying to schedule that now. What do you make of the race, and how is Colorado doing addressing gun crimes? Well, I, I do think in this mayoral runoff, Denver is fortunate to have two very capable runoff candidates, and uh, both very credible and very ca capable. I've known Mike Johnston since he was in the state legislature. Uh, he was always solid on gun violence prevention legislation and a leader, and I respected that at the when he was in that role. Um, but Kelly Bruff, I've known since she worked for Mayor Hickenlooper. She was a top aide for Mayor Hickenlooper, and then when she went to work at the Denver Chamber of Commerce as the head, um, I'm I'm a Kelly Bruff fan. I think she's would be a great convener and historic to have a woman uh, lead Denver. Uh, and I think she can take on some of these really serious problems in a way that is uh, community building and moving the, the city forward in a united way. So I've, I've been supporting Kelly. I've been in touch with her. Um, I had a chance to meet with her in October when I was visiting Colorado, and she has my endorsement. So I'm pulling for Kelly Bruff. Now, did I hear you correctly? Did you say she's a great convener or leader? I just, I'm not sure if I heard she's the word convener. right. convener. I like that word. I don't think I've ever heard it. What does that mean, convener? I think I know what it means, but tell me. I, you know, I think when you have that platform in that office, you're seeing it in Israel right now at the president's office. Any, you, inv you can invite anyone to anything and they will come. So if you say, I'm going to form a task force to address school violence at Denver Public Schools, and I want you to be there and send an invitation from the office of the mayor, people will come. And then you get you have the opportunity to convene the people that, that can make the difference, that can make decisions, empower them to make recommendations, and lead them with a charge. Okay, you guys are here. We want to see your top 10 recommendations that can be implemented by Denver Public Schools this year. And we, we're going to give you a deadline to do that. So I think that's one of the powers of executive office, which I believe Kelly understands very well because John Hickenlooper was a great convener, right? He, that was one of his great attributes as well as he was always reaching out to people and getting them to come in and help solve problems and to serve. Um, I think any great mayor is that's has to be one of their top 
uh, weapons is their ability to invite people to participate and not not be in the position of I have I have the answer to every problem. Just listen to me. I like the way you talk like Hick right there, right? I mean, correct? I mean, it's interesting. This <laughs> phrase, great convener, is that a Kent Holtz original? Because I've never heard it before. It's a Kent Holtz original. Yeah, you can call it that. It's a beauty. Way to go. You know who tries to convene everybody around the world and he's making a mess of it is Elon Musk. I follow you on Twitter. You put out a lot of content. Why do you use Twitter? Do you think it will be a force for good or bad? And what do you make of this guy, Elon Musk? I use social media for relationship building, Craig. And it's been a tremendous way to, to form relationships here. I moved to Israel four years ago. I didn't know anyone. I had no relatives here. And now if you look at my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed, you will see all of these people who are posting in Hebrew. And these are all Israelis that I've come to know and connect with over these last four years through social media. So um, I, what I post of my own, uh, you know, my own posts are my opinions. I, I put them out there. Um, I'm not shy about it. I'm an open book. And people respond, and I form relationships with journalists and talk to them about what they're reporting and what I know, and I compliment them if I agree. And I uh, am not afraid to also put up something in social media that's critical of something that they said. Um, and I found that that social media is that is a tremendous relationship building tool, and also it's a, a tool for me to spread the writing that I've been doing. You know, I've been writing in the Jerusalem Post for the last couple of years now, and in the Times of Israel and in Haaretz as well. Um, and I want people to know what I'm writing about uh, and what my what I bring to the table in terms of coming to Israel with my background of uh, professional um, and uh, social, political, Jewish, and all, all that good stuff wrapped into one. So um, yeah, I've, I've I've watched with amusement uh, of Elon Musk. He's somebody I've criticized on Twitter himself. Uh, but as we know, there nothing is static. Everything's always changing. So Twitter's changing. It's not really a surprise. Um, it's still useful. Right. It is. Although it's on the precipice. Let's talk about Fox News. I was a little startled when I went to visit somebody in the Negev and I walked in their house, and there was Fox News on the television. I found that interesting. I just didn't realize the reach. How many Israelis are oh, yeah. aware of Fox News? Get it in their house? Watch it? Tell me. On my cable system, it's Fox and CNN are on. Uh, no MSNBC, but Fox and CNN are easily accessible. Uh, there is an Israeli broadcast channel, which people here call the Israeli version of Fox News, which is uh, kind of a right-wing polemicist uh, masquerading as a, as a news website or news broadcast authority. So um, I, I think that's infiltrated around the world. Um, but what you know, what's really interesting about Israel is there's people who've moved here from everywhere in the world, right? And uh, in the last several years, we have thousands and thousands of immigrants from Russia and Ukraine who come here speaking Russian or Ukrainian and understanding Russian. 
they don't really speak Hebrew. They don't necessarily know English. They have a different culture. And they're adding a new, uh, interesting atmosphere culturally to Israel in a big over 75 years. You've had these waves of immigrants from various parts of the world. From Israel's perspective, your view from the Holy Land, Ken Toltz, how does the conflict between Russia and Ukraine look? Does it frighten you because it's, uh, it may affect Israel or you have bigger things to worry about? Well, I'm really glad you asked me that question because I wanted to tell the story of my Pesach Seder in Jerusalem. And that it relates. I, I was invited to a Pesach Seder by Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt and his wife. And Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt has been the chief rabbi of Moscow for the last 25 years. Raised his family in Moscow. And when the Ukraine war started, he left as quickly as possible to get the heck out of there. And they're settled in Jerusalem. And uh, we talked a lot about, he ha also had some other friends at the table, at the Pesach table. He's an Orthodox rabbi. I had never been to an Orthodox Seder before, which was really a tremendous experience. It lasted late into the wee hours of the morning. Um, but it epitomizes a couple of things is they, the people who lived in Moscow and watched Putin up, up close understand that you have no freedom in Moscow, no freedom of expression. You're always under scrutiny and under threat. And if you have a high profile position, when the Ukraine war started, you were expected to back the war publicly. And if you weren't prepared to back the war publicly, you better be prepared to go to prison or in Rabbi's case to leave. And he wrote an, after he left, he wrote an article in the Jerusalem Post and he said, it's time for the rest of the Russian Jews to leave. This is, this is not a tenable situation for Russian Jewry. Um, so we continue to see a number of, a large number of Russians and a large number of Ukrainians and the law in Israel, the law of return, if you have one Jewish grandparent, you're entitled to, to Israeli citizenship. It's called the law of return. Uh, luckily, I had four Jewish grandparents, so it wasn't an issue for me. But a lot of times these Russians and Ukrainians have to prove that one of their relatives, you know, first degree relative was Jewish and that somebody knows they're Jewish. But as they grew up, they never practiced Judaism. It was not something that, you know, was, in fact, you, you hid your Judaism. So they come to Israel, and for the first time in their lives, they're in a country that right, wants to and is celebrating Jewish rituals every, every week, every Friday night, and then major holidays. And they're in an environment where it's okay to be Jewish, and some of them want to really understand and study, and some of them just want to live a, a life of freedom and be part of uh, building Israel. Uh, and, and not worry about their own personal freedom and success. So I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's worth noting um, that we, you know, in the United States, we decades ago, including in Denver, were advocates for freeing Soviet Jewry from communism. And if you remember those days uh, and the people that were involved, and that resulted in the first major wave of immigrants from Russia in the early 1990s to Israel. Now we're seeing another wave. Uh, so these are younger people and they're 25 or 30 years removed from that generation. And they bring a whole new sensitivity and cultural attributes, which I think add a lot to Israel. So that's another reason that I'm very optimistic and hopeful about Israel's future is the people who are coming. Yeah, Eastern Europe. right. A lot of great Kalran's got involved. 
bolder action for Soviet Jewry. Rebecca Bradley, her daughter Morgan Carroll, described it. I bet Warren and Ruth Toltz were involved in those activities. I know Beth Joseph, the rabbis, would talk about it on Kol Nidre, so you know it was really important. But just to go back to Pincus Goldschmidt, who instinctively said, we've got to get out of here now, and he recognized Putin for the authoritarian he is and the threat to Jews. And I just want to go back to um, Donald Trump just a little bit because I think they're joined at the hip. And Putin could be argued, is he an anti-Semite? Is he not? But Rabbi Pincus Goldschmidt recognized regardless, authoritarianism is a threat to Jews, right? And that's exactly. why he got the hell out of there. And exactly. uh, so authoritarianism is always anti-Semitic, isn't it? Aren't we always the canaries in the coal mine? Where typically you're right. That's one of the first targets. And certainly we are seeing those kinds of uh, targeting of Jews uh, in these, these fringe right-wing groups uh, that's coming out in some of these January 6th trials and some of these crimes. Uh, the guy who leaked all the intelligence information had yes. anti-Semitic screeds. Some of the um, mass shooters are anti-Semites. So, um, I mean, I know you brought on Scott Levin, my good friend, uh, several episodes ago to talk about his work. Uh, anti-Semitism is uh, everywhere where we thought it wasn't going to be. Um, so, you know, yeah, including possible, including on Fox happen. News for ADL. Uh, Scott, the Rocky Mountain Regional Director, long ago, what was it, two and a half years ago, called for Tucker Carlson to be fired. He advanced that replacement theory, bunch of anti-Semitic shit, but I still have to hear my old radio partner Dan Kaplis play his sound bites every day, that Ryan Schuling pulls him, uh, pulls those bites for him, he mindlessly plays Tucker Carlson. The guy is vile. To me, he represents a threat to the Jewish people. He consorts with anti-Semites. I don't like him. How about you, Ken Toltz? I'm glad he's gone, and I hope he disappears, but I doubt he will. Is Tucker Carlson well, I, I a major say, figure? Like to, yeah, go ahead. I would just like to see Fox News disappear along with uh, Tucker Carlson. I, I think they've been such a destructive force to American society for such a long time now. They haven't done accomplished anything positive for America. They've just been uh, feeding grievance on a regular basis and targeting uh, every chance they get, tearing down you know the social fabric of the country for money in the in the yes. great American search for the almighty yes. dollar. And, and that's Putin's primary motivation. I think he's the richest guy in the world. He's been skimming off of uh, oil, everything. He's just a mobster, heads up the Russian mafia. And we know Trump loves money more than anything. Same with Murdoch. When some of us just care about things other than money, like the Denver Nuggets, are they going to win the NBA championship this year? Do you care? Do Israelis care? Israelis love their basketball, Craig. They love their basketball. They have NBA basketball on TV all the time. Um, in my family, actually, it's hockey that they're really uh, keen on, and they're hoping that the Avs come through and make it to the Stanley Cup again. 
Um, so I haven't followed the Nuggets. I know they are they're in their first round of the playoffs and they're doing okay. They they're already well. won they round two against Phoenix starts tonight, and we're going to take it to them. Let me go on the record for. Four games for the Nuggets, two for Phoenix. We take them out in Phoenix game six. Okay, that's what I predict. I am psyched about it. The Avs have won. The Nuggets have never even been to the finals. Give Hoop fans a little something, Ken. Come on. (laughs) Well, I know you're a basketball fanatic, Craig. Uh, And, you know, I was surprised during your uh, conversation with Steve Feinsilver that you didn't he didn't bring up your nickname from high school, Sweet Silves. Well, thank you. Yeah, which I that think was came na- from your basketball days. It, it you was had such na- a sweet was, jump shot. Yes, right? it was named after my jump shot, which was more shot than jump, but it was deadly. <laughs> it's one of the most criminal it was things. Sweet, right? And it was from three point distance, and I only got two points for it until you know much later in lawyers' leagues and stuff like that. But holy cow, are we lucky to have you as our uh, man in Israel, Ken Toltz, our man in Israel. I think that should be the episode title, Ken Toltz, our man in Israel. How do you like it? I love it. Craig, thank you very much for having me. I, I, I've been holding a sign on my, that I wanted to show you. Please. It's a Hebrew, this was a, this was a protest sign, and it says, Ain Hopesh, Ain Hopesh, Ain High Tech. So where I live, we have uh, many, many high tech workers and with all the big national, international companies. They went out on a, a big protest and this was one of their signs. This is pro-democracy. Well, what does that mean? That no, I'm no good. I know no Ain Kalo Heno, Ain Kadonenu. I know that, but I don't even know what Ain means. What does it mean? Ain means no. I mean, it's 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 a way of saying none. So if there's no freedom, there's no high tech. So the startup nation cannot exist, and these tech workers are not going to stick around if this uh, judicial reform that BB is trying to pass is is going to pass Ooh. because it's going to take away freedom. And I, I really respected them for walking out of their offices and going out to the streets, making signs, and saying we have a stake in this country too. We're not just here to make a living. We have a stake in democracy, and we're not going to put up with this. We are going to go to the streets and protest, and we're not going to let a dictatorship happen in Israel. Well, I hope the lawyers, yeah, I hope the lawyers are coming out saying no freedom and no rule of law. We're out of here, too. What are the lawyers doing over there? Are they active? Exactly. Uh, Yeah, everybody's active. The nurses are active. The teachers are active. They all have, this is a, a WhatsApp group revolution there i've been told there are 300 whatsapp groups that are in touch with each other all the time about what are we doing and when are we doing it and where are we supposed to be and what are the signs supposed to say and it's it's all grassroots driven there is no infrastructure there's no leadership there's no political parties it's citizen advocacy citizen activism it's democracy in action which is a beautiful thing and that's why I am more hopeful and more optimistic and more inspired than I've ever be- before been about Israel today. I love that positivity. Let's end it there. Shabbat Shalom, Ken Toltz, our man in Israel. Shabbat Shalom, sweet silves. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Michael Bailey, a friend. 
a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's Attitude Mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour. Craig, calling in from Jazz Fest. How are you? I'm good. How's Jazz Fest? Well, it's been like 24 hours of amazing music and food. I can tell you I saw a lot of great bands today. A band from Mali, Africa. I'm about to see Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, who I love. Um, Kermit Ruffins, who's a trumpet player extraordinaire. So many good people. Charlie Musselwhite, who's a... He's a harmonica player, a blues player, getting getting older now. But uh, all good, all good, Craig. It sounds like me describing golfers at a pro tournament to you, because I don't know these guys. But no. I do know you. You are my favorite musician. Thank you for setting the tone. Craig, I got to tell you, I, there were so many good mu- musicians I took a lot of videos and my phone died. I had to figure out a way to get my phone charged so I could call my buddy and we could record. Well, that's what we're doing right now, young fella. Well, I'm back. (laughs) Okay, does that mean your phone is now charged? Are you charged? It's been been recharged sufficiently, yes. And are you charged up there, young fella? 
I think I'm I think I'm basically running low myself. It's How did you day. set the tone today? No, I set the tone as um, all all good is the tone today, Craig. I'm in my element. You're on vacation. Don't hold back. Okay. Well, my plan is to get something to eat with some friends who came down and then uh, maybe take a little rest. And then I'm going to see a band tonight in the club. That's the thing. You know, you've got all day music and then there's there's music in the clubs at night. It's definitely... It's definitely, you know, burning burning the candle at both ends when right. you come to New Orleans. And alcohol 24-7, those fancy drinks. No, okay, not 24-7, but I hope <laughs> I hope you're having no. a little something, you know. Who I am, I am. I'm having my, I had a few beers and having a great time. You know who was the biggest degenerate of all time, as described by E. Jean Carroll? No, tell me. Hunter S. Thompson. She wrote a biography oh, of him. That's fair. I think that's probably a fair, a fair assessment. Did you ever hear his daily schedule? He'd probably get up in the morning and you know snort snort coke before he brushed his teeth. Good, good. I'll let Eugene tell it. Here's Hunter's daily schedule, which is, by the way, an understatement. Three o'clock p.m. Rise. Three o five p.m. Chevis Regal. With the morning papers, Dunhills, 3.45, cocaine, 3.50, another glass of Chevis, another Dunhill, 4.05 p.m., first cup of coffee, Dunhill, 4.15, cocaine, 4.16, orange juice, Dunhill, 4.30, cocaine, 4.54, Cocaine, four fifty-seven. Cocaine, five oh five. Cocaine, five eleven. Coffee, Dunhills, five thirty. More ice in the Chevis, five forty-five. Cocaine, etc., etc. And at six p.m., we have a little grass to take the edge off the day. And at seven oh five, he goes to Woody Creek Tavern for lunch, and for lunch. It's a Heineken, two margaritas, two cheeseburgers, two orders of fries, a plate of tomatoes, coleslaw, a taco salad, a double order of fried onion rings, carrot cake, ice cream, a bean fritter, Dunhills, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, a snow cone. That's a glass of shredded ice over which he pours four jiggers of Chevis. He arrives home nine o'clock, starts snorting cocaine seriously. 10 o'clock p.m., drops acid. 11 o'clock, chartreuse, cocaine, grass. 11.30, cocaine, etc., etc. 12 midnight, Hunter, Hunter Thompson is ready to write 12.05 to 6 a.m. Chartreuse, cocaine, grass, Chevis, coffee, Heineken, clove cigarettes, grapefruit, Dunhills, orange juice, gin, and continuous pornographic movies. 6 o'clock a.m., the hot tub. (laughs) 
He climbs into the hot tub with a glass of champagne, a chest of Dove bars, and a bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. At 8 a.m., he takes a house in, and at 8.20, Hunter S. Thompson is asleep. Oh, it just hails cocaine in Hunter's house. Let's get back to you. Let's get back to you. And where are you right now, in the middle of a mob? I'm standing in a big field with about, I don't know, maybe 60,000 people waiting to see um, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. I managed to get up pretty close. You can hear the noise, right? Yes. Is that the band bringing in equipment or what? No, no, no. It's between acts. I timed it so that I could talk to you between between acts. And uh, they're starting in a few minutes here. All right, I imagine there is a salute to Israel turning 75. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. There should be something, though. Why did you pick Set the Tone as a song you thought appropriate for that auspicious moment? Set the Tone, create your your future, you know, step into into your future with strength, with positivity. I thought that would apply to the creation of Israel. Do you remember what lach lecha means in Hebrew? Lach lecha. Go forth. Go forth and be fruitful. Drink a lot of wine and multiply. Anyway, E. Jean Carroll, she's pretty cool because now she's nailing Donald Trump to the wall in a New York City courtroom. And I'm telling you, and I told you on our walk that it's the biggest thing going, right? Yeah, seeing the nails to the wall might not be so bad, but you know, I always tell you to, you know, let's wait until we see because he's he slithers. He is. Greg, he finds his I way know. out. But you know why yeah. that's just the best first case? Because because it's civil and it sets the tone. It sets the tone. Preponderance of evidence. It's going to be one case after another, tone. starting with the finding by a jury. That Donald Trump is a rapist. That's going to be big. Why not make his life a little bit miserable? It, it wouldn't even begin to uh, to to compare to all the all the misery he's spread in his uh, time. He needs to be embarrassed so his followers shrink back from their Maybe. lord. Right? Realize we shall see. He needs to be exposed <laughs> like the Wizard of Oz. Pull back the curtain. Anyway. And now I'm in wishful thinking. Joe Biden announced. Are people enthusiastic for Joe in Louisiana? I haven't spoken with them, Craig. My guess is they've got the same uh, reservations that so many people have. But I think he's done a really exemplary job. And so if he thinks he can do four years more, let's give him a shot. That's my thing. Right. One reservation is he's 80 years old. But look at you. You're pushing the end of your (laughs) late 40s. And and the bottom line is that I think that Joe Biden, because he's senior to Donald Trump, he sets a tone, which is. He sets the tone, too. uh, That's right. right. And you know what? I'm kind of a senior to Ken Toltz, our guest this week from Israel, and he's a junior. So that sets a certain tone between us because, hey, it's just like you being older than me. I, I respect that, which is why I really don't give you any shit ever. 
You give me shit, but remember to respect your elders, Craig. Right, it's like important. your great papa. And I consider myself your elder. Well, yeah, and you you have such a great role model. Your song has a lot of great double meanings. Tell everybody why you go to New Orleans and whether your trip is fulfilling all those needs this year. I was excited to come down this year. I packed like three days ahead of time. Lisa was Lisa was saying, "Why are you packing now?" Anyway, no, I come down. It's it's where it's where you can come and and uh, find like-minded people who are there to enjoy life celebrate life in, in, in the music and the food, camaraderie. It's just, they call New Orleans the Big Easy, and when you come down here, you'll understand. Before you went to the Big Easy, we went to Bobby R. Park for the Day of Remembrance. Uh, that Right before Israel's birthday, we commemorate all the lost Jews killed through just uh, abominable circumstances especially the Holocaust. Thanks for coming with me over the, there to Bobby R. Park. It, well, it meant a lot. Inviting me. No, it means a lot to go there, and I do appreciate you inviting me. It was, uh, it was a meaningful time together. Well, it set the tone for an impactful week. And Ken Tolt, she'll be happy to know, he sets a positive tone from Israel. He says there's a lot of turmoil, but the right side... The Democrat-loving people, I mean, democracy-loving people, they are turning on Trump, they are turning on Netanyahu, and a brighter future lies ahead. You have a great night with Robert Plant. Thanks for doing it. And uh, Shabbat Shalom, my friend. And Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Craig. Uh, I'll send you some videos. I got, I've got to send you some videos of this amazing music. Thank you, buddy. All See right. you, Troubadour. Bye. Take care. You hit the wall You 
he sets the tone. Eagle sets the tone. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do, but like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, that's podcast. I hope you liked it. I enjoyed putting it together. Until next week, please let me thank Ken Toltz, Dave Gunders, and you, the listeners. We are living through amazing history. Thanks for sharing it with me. Oh, and if you like this show, would it kill you to tell a friend? Have them subscribe? Leave a five-star review? Thanks again. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.